to preach this morning. Um, that resource is from uh, a website called The Bible Project. Maybe you've heard of it. I know several of you have watched several of their videos. And they have a video like that for every book in the Bible, uh, which is pretty awesome. So if you need a resource and you're trying to figure some stuff out, it's a good place to go. They don't outline everything the way that we would, but in this particular case they do. And so I hope that was helpful as we begin uh, our series in Zephaniah. Uh, before we get going any further, I just want to take a moment and let's pray together. Uh, would you pray with me? Our Father, again, I thank you for gathering your people together. I, I pray, Lord, that over the next few minutes, um, as through the, through the preaching of your word, that, that you would be made famous in this room, that Jesus would be lifted up high, that the gospel would be made known, and that our hearts would, would know your great love for us. That we'd come to grips with the truth of who we are in light of the truth of who you are, that you would lead us to repentance and to a life that is full of satisfaction and joy and praise towards you, God. I pray that you would say what you want to say to each one of us, that you would have each one of our ears hear what you have for us, Lord. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want to be worth something to somebody. We want to be seen. We all want to be known. We want to know that we have value, know that we have worth. That's not a bad thing, right? I mean, you were made in God's image. God, who himself desires to be worshipped and praised and honored and glorified, that's whose image you were made in. So it makes sense. Like, of course, then you have a desire to be valued. That's a reflection of God in you. And in the book of Zephaniah, Though it's one of the most damning little books in the scripture, there's also a great hope that these desires of ours for value and worth might just come true. And at the end of the book, as we even saw a second ago, the very last verse of Zephaniah in 3.20, it says this. It says, at, the time, at that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore the fortunes before your, your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And a verse, a few verses before that, it's three seventeen. It says this: The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine it? You and me, renowned. Praised among the people of the earth. God rejoicing over you. God exulting over over you. Jubilantly singing loudly about you and how much he loves you. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine God dancing because you're his kid? Zephaniah says that he'll quiet you by his love. And I think the quiet is the humility that we'll feel in that moment. Like sometimes when I... I tell my kids how much I love them and and how beautiful they are to me and how valuable they are. They get really bashful, right? And they look away. They feel so loved in the moment, I know, that they can't stand it and they're both kind of proud and humbled at the same time and they look away and I know that's how they feel because I've felt that. It's why I can't take a compliment very well 
right, without like losing my composure. I hope you felt that way too. And this is the promise of Zephaniah. God's going to sing over you and tell everybody about how proud he is that you are his kid. He's going to dance about and make a big deal about how beautiful you are and how much he loves you. And all your desires to be truly seen and truly known and truly valued and loved will all at once be fulfilled and will overflow. You'll be proud and also completely humbled. And it'll be good and it'll be right. That's the promise of Zephaniah. But before we get to that beautiful end in chapter 3, there's a problem of having to first go through chapters 1 and 2. Now, I know Zephaniah wasn't actually writing to us in Augusta, Georgia in 2020, right? He was actually writing and prophesying to a kingdom uh, of Judah during the reign of Josiah. That's from the, in the years about 640 or so B.C. And I think, I think Josiah's story this morning may help illustrate a problem that we actually have in common with this king of Judah. So Josiah was the great-grandson of Hezekiah. We talked about him a little bit in a few, uh, a, a few prophets ago, a couple prophets ago, really. And his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, was Manasseh, and he ruled Judah poorly, the Scripture says. Like whatever Hezekiah had done, who had done well, whatever he had done to bring reform and to lead people back to the worship of God, Manasseh had undone. And then, uh, then there's Josiah's father, and his name was Amon, uh, who, like his father, he, he was just the same way. He led poorly. He led with evil. He led his people to idolatry and sin, but he was only a king for two years, and then he died, and then it's Josiah's turn, and Josiah became king when he was eight years old. But Josiah did things different. I mean, that's crazy, right? Just that, becoming king at eight years old. But Josiah did things differently. Josiah, unlike Manasseh and unlike his father, listened to the prophets of Zephaniah and Jeremiah and others. And under Josiah, there was once again great reform. People were being led back to the worship of God. And actually, during his reign, the book of Deuteronomy, which had been like hidden or covered up or kind of lost, was rediscovered. And Josiah read the book and about all the promises of the blessings of God for his people. And he also read about all the promised curses if his people didn't remain faithful. So Josiah started cleaning house, and he took all the idols out that his father and grandfather had put in place, and and he led the people back to the worship of God. He even began uh, to lead people back into a Passover celebration. Uh, The scripture says it was there was a Passover observed like there hadn't been since the days of Samuel. But in spite of all the reform that Josiah brought, God through a a prophetess named Huldah, tells Josiah that he will still be bringing judgment on Judah because of the sins and idolatry that has has existed in the past and that even still exists today. But also, that's bad news, but also he tells Josiah that Josiah has done well and that though God will still judge Judah, Josiah will not see that in his lifetime. If you go on to read all the story, the scriptures will tell you that there wasn't another king like Josiah in Judah, that he humbled himself before the Lord, and that he did well. It's his humility before the Lord that garners him praise from the book, uh, from the Bible, and from God himself. Yet, 
While it was his humility that garnered him that praise, Josiah's death came about because of his pride. And this is how that goes. When the Egyptian king drew near in order to meet another nation in battle, Josiah decided that he wanted a piece of Egypt. He wanted a piece of that action. So he rode out to the fight, and he caught an arrow, and he died. And the question is, why did Josiah go? Why did he feel like he needed to fight Pharaoh? Like, did the Lord lead him to do that? Was Pharaoh coming after them? Was he a threat to Judah? The answer to all those types of questions is no. Here's the account in 2 Chronicles 35, 21 through 23. This is the king of Egypt talking. What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And listen to this. And God has commanded me to hurry. See supposing God who is with me lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. See, in fact, God spoke through the king of Egypt to Josiah. And he told Josiah not to fight. But Josiah made a decision and he deliberately disobeyed because he wanted his own glory. He wanted the win. He worshipped himself in that moment over worshipping God. And he died. Now I tell you that story for two reasons. First is because Josiah's reign in Judah is the backdrop to the book of Zephaniah, which we'll be in for the next few weeks, but also because it illustrates our own problem. Josiah's problem was the same as ours. This is it. It isn't that we desire to be valued and seen and known that's the problem. That's not a problem. It's our pride. It's our desire to be valued above others and above God. Pride leads us to try and steal worth from God and steal worth from others in order to feel valued and in order to feel our worth. But it never satisfies. It just leaves you looking for more. You know, you can fill a gas tank with water just to fill it up, but the car won't start. The engine won't be satisfied because that's not how it's built to operate. And you and I weren't built to be filled up with the praise of others or with the praise that belongs only to God. We were built to worship God alone and to find our value and to find our joy, to find our satisfaction in He who would dance and sing over us. But we often follow our pride anyways. We have hurt ourselves, and we've broken others in our search for worth, and that's true of all of us. I've been Josiah. I've wanted to feel valued so much that I've tried to steal God's glory. And I, like you, have ended up hurt, I've ended up broken, and I've broken people, and I've broken other things around me in the process. But I think for people like us, Zephaniah holds some really good news and some help. So we're going to turn to Zephaniah, we're going to read uh, this first section. It's kind of a long section, and fair warning, it's intense in places. But I want you to follow along in your Bible, or you could follow along on a screen, and I'm going to read this for us. It's chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 3. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble and the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from the following of the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests, and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. And on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Habit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink the wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. It's a day of wrath. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and a battle cry against fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end will, make, will he make of all inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the, degree, the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like the chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, God is clearly angry. That's not tough to find there. God's mad. He's not happy about some stuff, and he's going to do some pretty major things about it. But upon further examination of the text, we begin to see what the cause of God's intense anger actually is. It's the same old idolatry and the same old sin that we keep coming up against time and time again in these minor prophets over the last several months. So look at Zephaniah again, Zephaniah 1.8. It says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. What's this about? Arraying themselves in foreign attire. 
I mentioned the king Manasseh a few minutes ago. And he, along with other kings, were guilty of installing foreign gods and foreign idols and leading the people to worship them. And he did that in order to gain the favor of other kingdoms, namely Assyria, in order to protect their own kingdom and to afford the people of Judah further comfort and further prosperity. Basically, these kings, Manasseh and others, went about building the kingdom in their own wisdom instead of looking to God as king, looking to find their value and their worth from other nations and other powers and leading God's people away from him and into a very different identity as a nation. And what's more, if you think about the fact that Israel, that's Judah's kin, that's the northern kingdom, has already been taken by Assyria, is enslaved by Syria, was dragged away with hooks by Syria, is still in captivity with them, it makes it even more kind of unbelievable and sick that Judah would choose then to prosper off the backs of their brothers. Dark. Let's move on and look at the next verse, Zephaniah 1.9. It says, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence, and with fraud. The idea of leaping over the threshold is related to when people would go into the temple of a god uh, and they would step over or they would leap over the threshold to the door of the temple as if to rush past or skirt around the power of the god that was in the doorway. So this charge here is that God's people are actively stepping around or trying to leap over the power of God and the ways of God. And then they're going into his temple, his temple, and filling it with violence and fraud and injustice. We're talking about things like prostitution and rape. We're talking about taking advantage of the poor in horrible fashion. Many of these things have been described in the other minor prophets as we've looked through them. They've made the act of worshiping God in his temple, the act of worshiping or valuing God into actual acts of dehumanizing and devaluing others in order to make themselves more superior, make themselves more powerful and more prosperous. And they've done it all thinking that they could avoid God's power, which leads me down to Zephaniah 1.12. It says, at this, at that time... I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They presume on God. They presume on God. They almost taunt him in their presumption and in their complacency. They are complacent in their relationship to him, believing that he can do neither good nor bad to them, that somehow the creator of the whole universe, the God who brought them out of Egypt and made them a people is out of options. They think they have the upper hand. So, just those few things, looking at those few things. How could God not burn with hot anger when such injustices are being done and such insults are being demonstrated towards him in the place of praise? And it's not just 
like being done by any people. This is being done by his people, the people he delivered from the oppression of Egypt long, long ago. They have now become the oppressor. His people are using his temple and using his name to oppress others in their own nation in order to build a name for themselves, in order to steal glory wherever and from whoever they can take it. They're not looking to God for their worth. They've turned to idols, they've turned to statues, and they've turned to foreign kings. And their lust for their own prosperity is insatiable. How could a truly loving and just God not be livid with anger? Now before we move any further forward, we've got to stop and we've got to talk about how to read this and how to learn from it and how to apply it to us. Because I think it would be really easy to read over these chapters and start to feel a sense of superior, superiority over like the people of Judah. Feeling ourselves a little weary of their continued turning away from God. I mean, month after month after month as we go through the Minor Prophets, it's the same old thing. Idols and sin, idols and sin, idols and sin. Their continued defilement of the temple, it just keeps going. Their fraud, their violence, and their other criminal activity. We may weary, grow weary of that. I think it would also be easy to read these chapters and cut and paste like our secular culture in America into the hot seat. We could get angry about how people today just like continue to deny God and continue to rebel against him and uh, and continue to sin in much the same way as those in Judah are sinning. Sins involving sex and money and murder. I think it would even be easy in our politically charged climate to put Christians of a different political persuasion than you in the place of the people of Judah. And in all those scenarios, you and I would get to stay in like this seemingly comfortable seat of Zephaniah. I guarantee you he wasn't in a comfortable seat, but we can get self-righteous really fast and we can let our pride get us in trouble. So this is what I want us to hear. When we read this and we try to apply it, we aren't Zephaniah. You aren't Zephaniah. You're not the prophet. And God isn't letting us in on this stuff so that we can carry out some sort of righteous crusade of correcting some other group of people. That's not the point here. Now, we on the side, on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, who believe in him as our Savior, we are God's people with Judah. Right? We are God's people united with Judah. And we need to hear this word from Zephaniah in the same way that they needed to hear it because it addresses our problem of glory-stealing pride. It addresses my problem of idolatry. It addresses your problem of sin. Because in our search to be seen and valued and to find worth, whether our kingdoms consist of families, businesses, or church, or whatever else, We too have built kingdoms in our own wisdom, ignoring God. And in my search for satisfaction, I've tried to skirt around God's power in order to sin as I please with lies, with exaggerations, with manipulations, meant to steal even just a little bit of value from somebody else for myself. And in your pride, you've presumed on God, thinking that he's really not going to care that much about a little gossip, 
or a little financial miscalculation that works to your advantage or a harmless racist comment or the sexual sins that maybe have only been entertained in your mind or on your computer where nobody can see them. We have hurt ourselves and we've broken others in our search for worth. We've hurt ourselves and we've broken others in our search for worth and value. So we must be listening as if these charges in Zephaniah 1 are against us because they could be and they are. Now, with that set of ears on, let's move forward and take a look at Zephaniah 1. 14 through 16. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty talked a little bit about the day of the Lord before Christmas when we were in the the, the book of Joel. And I mentioned then that the day of the Lord has this immediate implication and it has a distant future implication. We talked about how when we are dealing with God who's outside of time and who actually created time, we can actually talk about the day of the Lord and be talking about past, present, and future simultaneously. Zephaniah is doing just that. Zephaniah first mentions the day of the Lord in verse one, chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And he says this after already beginning to describe this day in verse two through, verses 2 through 6, where he basically talks about reversing the order of creation with a proclamation, sweeping away everything away from the earth. And then after verse 7, we see, as we did in Joel, that Zephaniah's prophecy looks to the immediate future and story of his original audience, the people of Judah. And he voices what's about to come about and why. God will judge his people by sending foreign armies to overtake overtake them because of their idolatry and sin. But Zephaniah, by the inspiration of God, writes also to us in the distant future. It's a looking ahead all the way to Good Friday, a day of wrath, a day of darkness, a day of stress, distress, a day when the mighty man cries. When Jesus would pay the penalty of our sin with his death on the cross, making us recipients of his blessings that he promised to Israel and to Judah. But it looks beyond that also. It looks beyond the cross to the resurrected King Jesus coming back and making his final judgment when he lays waste and sweeps away all that has rejected him, all who have ultimately rejected not only him, but their own purpose and their own true value. But amidst all these indictments and all these promises of judgment and wrath, there's also a glimpse of hope for the ultimate restoration of God's people in his creation. And there's a plan. There's a plan for prideful, power-hungry sex-offending, murdering frauds like the people of Judah and like you and me. There's a plan to finally find what we've been looking for all along, 
and that's our worth and our value. Listen to this. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. Let's read that again. Gather together. Yes, gather. O shameless nation, before the decree that takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there, becomes, uh, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps He may hit, be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There is tremendous good news in that passage. Zephaniah invites God's people and invites us to seek the Lord, to seek His righteousness or His justice, and to seek humility. And then in verse 3, he says, Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden. Zephaniah's name means God hides, God protects, God treasures. And this is his message. Perhaps you may be hidden. God hides. God protects. God treasures. I love that. Like it stopped me flat in my tracks this week. It changed the course of the sermon and it, it, it even brought me to tears as I considered it. I mean, in order to hide you, in, in order to hide me and protect us from the day of God's anger, Jesus has to die for you. Do you hear the good news? Like you who have sinned and you who've worshipped others and oppressed others for your gain in vile ways. Do you hear the good news? If you've hurt others, if you've hurt yourself and broken others in your search for worth, God gave his son for you. If you've hurt yourself and broken others in your search for worth, God gave his son for you. I mean, this is an invitation to to turn from a life of robbing anything and everything, trying to fill ourselves up with value, only to find our thirst for glory is never quenched. And it's a call to turn to a dad who's enamored by your beauty and worth, who treasures you, who loves you and who values you to the point that he would hide you and protect you from the death you deserve with his own life. You're invited to turn to a dad who treasures you, who sings and dances around you and yells in all the streets that you're his child. And in the end, the invitation is for you and I to experience a love that's so profound that it quiets you. It quiets us, and it humbles us with joy and satisfaction. The invitation is actually for two types of people, but I think the call to action is really the same. One is the person who's not yet followed Jesus. You're invited into the family of God. You're invited into the family of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, doesn't matter how you've hurt yourself or how you've hurt others. God gave his only son for you. He loves you and he wants to shelter you and treasure you as his child. Would you?
you turn to Jesus and submit to his leadership in your life? Answer Zephaniah's call to seek the Lord, seek humility, seek justice and what's right according to God. I'll say more about how to do that in a second, but if that's you, like I'd love to talk and pray with you this morning, or I'd love for you to talk and pray with somebody else you know. The other person that this invitation is for is already a follower of Jesus. We're part of the family of God, but we also, like King Josiah, forget him and go out to battles for our own glory and to our own demise. And in the process, we hurt ourselves, we break others, we misrepresent Jesus in a world that is desperate to meet him. And God gave his only son for you. And God gave his only son for us. So what do we do with this? How do we stop forgetting him? How do we remember our belovedness? How do we crush our idols and defeat our sin? On Christmas Eve, after our family Christmas party, we were, uh, our family was heading home from Evans, uh, out in Evans and coming back down Washington Road this way. And what we now affectionately refer to as the holiday armadillo uh, jumped out in front of my van and I crushed it, right? Now, nothing seemed wrong with the car. It was pretty loud. We all kind of jumped and got started a little bit, but we kept driving. But several miles down the road, the car started jolting. And so I looked down at the temperature gauge, and it's like up, it's off the charts. I'm overheating, didn't even know it, so I immediately pull over. A tow truck came, my in-laws came, and got my wife and my kids home, and then my father-in-law and I got tucked in the back of a cop car, and rode back to his house so I could get another car to use. It was kind of a fiasco of a Christmas Eve. It was like a Christmas movie. Um, And thankfully, it was just a hose that got knocked off. There was no permanent damage from killing the holiday armadillo. And the reason that is is because of the temperature gauge. Because once I saw that it was hot, I pulled over immediately, and we stopped in time for no further damage to happen. I think we need a trigger, like a temperature gauge, so that we know when our pride is running hot and when we need to cool it, when we need to be silent before God. And we need to be that for one another. That's, we need to be each other's temperature gauge. That's what Zephaniah is for his people in this book. And that's why we need each other. We need to keep pointing each other back to Jesus. We need to keep pointing each other back to humility. We need to keep pointing each other back to righteousness. I mean, we as a church, we can start all the programs. We can start missional communities. We can start all the DNAs in the world. But if you won't really go there and be that temperature gauge for each other, or if I won't really go there and be that temperature gauge for you, or allow others to be that for me, and vice versa, you'll forget your value again and again, and you'll go back to trying to steal God's glory from others. You know what's even better than a temperature gauge, though? A well-functioning cooling system where all the hose clamps are clamped up tight and the coolant's running through the engine like it's supposed to. However that works, I have no idea because I don't know anything about cars. But you get the idea. We don't just need a gauge to tell us to come back to God. We need to keep seeking Him first and intentionally. We need to seek Him. We need to seek humility. We need to seek righteousness. Like too often, I think we just let 
life float by without any intentionality to do what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount and what Zephaniah tells us to do here. We aren't intentional in our seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Somehow, like, we just cast that off, like, yeah, like, of course I'm going to do that, but when are we going to get to all the good stuff? But I'm telling you, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. That's where we meet him. That's when we see God for who he really is and experience how he loves us. That's where we stay hidden and protected, and that's where and when we start to look more like him, and it's how we make the real Jesus known to others. That's where he shapes us. It's the beginning of the year. You're probably making some sort of goals or resolutions. Maybe you're already breaking some. Good for you. Please, make knowing Jesus your first priority. Make knowing Jesus your first priority. Like humbly set aside like any seemingly bigger ideas than that because there is nothing more important. Set time aside for prayer. Set time aside for reading the scriptures. Ask these questions that we put in your bulletins of the scriptures like discover the truths about who God is and what he does who that makes you and how you ought to live in light of that. And prayerfully ask these hard questions of self-examination. Ask God to open your eyes to the places of pride and glory stealing that are alive in you and ask him to help you see and recognize his great love for you and deliver you from those things. And then also engage in the practice of belonging to the family of God. Engage in the practice of belonging to the family of God where we can be honest about our failures and we can love each other the way that God loves us. Let's practice together, church, being a temperature gauge for one another with your family, with your DNA, with your missional community, and with those you serve with on Sunday. We all want to be worth something to somebody. We want to be seen, we want to be known, we want to be valued, we want to know that we have worth. May we come to realize more this year God's great love for us. How he treasures us and how he values us. And may we be filled up with joy and humbled by his love. And may we as a church make the real Jesus known together as we seek the Lord, seek humility, and seek his righteousness. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each Sunday. There's just a few things we're going to do. The band's going to lead us through this time of worship. They'll come and they'll take communion and we'll follow uh, in doing that. When we take communion, you come down either one of these aisles, you take a piece of the bread, you can dip it in the wine or the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for you, and the blood represents, I mean, the wine and the juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. When we come and we take, we are remembering that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's our Lord and Savior, and that he values us and loves us so much that he laid down his life for us, but also that he has promised that he's, a, that he's alive, that he's resurrected, and he's promised to come again. Remembering all that, we're pro- proclaiming all of this good news to each other in this act. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take with us to remember Christ and proclaim him to one another. It's also a time where we can give our tithes and offerings as an act of worship. There's a basket back there with some other information about other ways you can give also. We're going to continue to sing together. And it's a chance for you to pray and reflect, to pray with one another with one another if you'd like. We're going to sing songs and worship our God and value Him and worship Him alone.
I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move into that time. Our Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And thank you so much for the good news of how much you love us. It's crazy. We are vile, broken people. We get eaten up with our own pride. We try to place ourselves not only above others, but even above you. God, you love us and you treasure us. And you are jealous for us. You're coming after us and come after us. May we see the heights and depths and widths and breadth of your great love for us, Jesus. And may it humble us and quiet us. May it move us to worship you alone and to make you known to others. In Jesus' name, amen.